0: So welcome to the program. This is our fourth uh, interview with on the Courage to Lead series. Uh, our guest today is Steve Van Sweeten. Uh, I'll declare right now, Steve and I have been mates for a number of years, since I think about 2003. Uh, we've, we've, uh, Steve is uh, probably the longest um, guest presenter to police leadership um, Programs that I've led since 2003. He's presented every year uh, up to two th- up to the year 2020. I even went to Armidale from Penrith to, to present up there in the uh, in the mid, um, around 2005. Um, so Steve, I'll just give a little bit of an intro to you. Steve um, is now the CEO of Exact Security, uh, a, co- a company that he's run for several years now. His son, Steve Jr, is part of that as well. Um, and in his prior emanations as a, as a leader, he's been the general manager at Panthers, the security manager at Panthers, um, and had several other jobs around that. He has... Um, I'll let you give the right title, Steve, but you've had numerous positions in an international, international security uh, foundation that looks to uh, make the security industry more professional. Um, and I know you've held, held presidential... Uh, level uh, qualifications in that. So if, if I think I've, that's enough from me. Let's hand over to Steve. Um, who is Steve Van Sweeten? What's your backstory, Steve? Uh, and uh, like I've heard your story several times, so if, but our listeners haven't. What's your early life uh, all about? The challenges that you faced in your early life and the choices that you had in that. So welcome to the program, Steve.
1: Thank you, Alan. I grew up in St Mary's and I went to um, Collin High School. And things were pretty good up until I went to high school. And um, what I found fairly quickly was that um, I just really wanted to enjoy life. I just wanted to be happy. And um, I didn't sort of you know, knuckle down and study. I didn't do anything that um, would help myself develop or grow at that stage in life. I just wanted to take the easy way out. I just wanted to play sports. I just wanted to go out with my friends. and. Um, just wanted to enjoy life and um it really didn't stand me in good stead because by the time I went through high school um I um had to make a decision what I want to do for a career and um my father said to me he said look you need to get the an apprenticeship and I said yeah sure that sounds good um so okay so i applied apply for an apprenticeship and back in my days there was plenty of opportunities for people to 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 get work in in, in that field the problem was um when we sat down to, to look at what apprenticeships were available, the only ones that were left were basically blacksmith, boilermaker or sheet metal worker. Now, they're great trades and I don't want to uh, diminish them, but they're hard work. They're dirty and they're hard work. All the jobs of electricians, carpenters, what you consider the cleaner work, the better work, they, all those positions were gone. And they were taken up by people who had done well at school, who'd scored good marks. So I think that was the first realisation that I probably wasted a lot of, a lot of time. Because I used to think some of my friends would study and sacrifice good times. I used to think they were a little bit, you know, a bit weird. And um, I realised that they'd positioned themselves for success where I hadn't. So that was probably the first consequence of that. And then I uh, ended up doing an apprenticeship on the state rail. And um, again, same old pattern. I wasn't the best tradesman because I didn't apply myself. I just wanted to take shortcuts, spend time with friends, have good times, and just uh, one day at a time, just enjoy life today, don't you know worry about tomorrow, we never know if tomorrow's going to come, and just, it's all about just uh, having a good time, and uh, so after <clears throat> about four years in the apprenticeship, I ended up, um, I met my wife, I married my wife, I became a tradesman. And. Um, I remember one of the early days. One of my wife's biggest concerns was that when she spoke about the future, I'd say, "Well, don't worry about the future. Let's just live for today." And again, as a very selfish young man, it was all about myself. Uh, even though I had a wife, uh, it was all about good times and not sacrificing, not working hard, not applying myself. So um, basically, that was that was sort of very much the same pattern uh, as a young as a young tradesman. My wife and I made a decision that um, when we had children that she would stay at home because she obviously wanted to give the children the best upbringing and to be the type of mother that was always there. But that didn't pay the bills, unfortunately. So I had to go and get a job. And uh, so I got a second job. I got a second job at a place called the Cambridge Tavern at Fairfield. And that was a job as a bouncer. And in those days, uh, the, the best bouncers, if I could say that, were probably the hardened criminals because it was a very much a different game then than it is today. And there was no security licensing, so you didn't require a license at all. All you needed to do was obviously have the criteria that a good bouncer needed. Mm. So, so yeah, so I worked a second job for for many, many years. And then um, an opportunity opened up at uh, at Stallions in Parramatta. And um, when I applied for that, I thought, well, okay, obviously I've been a leader, I've been a head doorman. I've been running a crew of men, but um, again, you realised once I went to stallions that uh, it wasn't leadership at all. It was just a, a bunch of guys having the best time you possibly could have in 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 that environment. So the interesting thing was Steve Bowden, was an ex Utah footballer, and he owned stallions at Parramatta. His manager hired me, and um, after one night, Steve Bowden called me in the office and he said, "Mate, I don't want people like you working here." And I said, "What?" And he said, mate, he said, "Um, I've spent millions and millions on this place, and I don't want people like you here. You've got a bad reputation. And I said, look, I've only ever done what people have asked me to do. People pay me. That's what I did. Hmm. And and I said, look, i tell you what. I said, "Um, I don't like that. I'm looking to better myself. I'm looking to do better in life now, and um, you tell me what you want, and uh, I'm sure I can do that. So he said, all right, I'll give you a chance. He said, I'll give you an opportunity. Anyway, probably, you know, three months later, maybe a little bit longer, I was his head doorman. And that was probably the first, the real first look at leadership, because they had a team of 20. So, um, but again, um, great opportunity, great opportunity to, to make changes in your life, position yourself, but the same thing again. I got caught up in, living for the day, enjoying the time with your mates, staffy, staying back, long hours, long times which put a lot of pressure on my wife and my children. Yeah. So um, that was really the, the, the early stages. But the key thing for me was that I just didn't learn. I just didn't learn. I um, I kept making the same mistakes over and over and over again because I think, looking back now, I was just very selfish.
0: Can I ask you, Um, like you, yeah. you talk about this kind of carried on from high school. So how old are you when you were at Stallions and you're four years in still living for the day and, you, and you're not learning. How, how many years on are we?
1: Well, I went to Panthers at 32 years of age, so that would have been from probably 27 to about 31 and a half years of age. So. At, at staying. You know, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a young 20-year-old that I started the change.
0: Yeah, okay. I think um, that's what I love about your story. Uh, it's never too late. Um, really uh, and, I, and I like how honest you are so so right we're still We're four year, four years at stallions and, and we're, we're up to now
1: okay and then um, I had an opportunity to uh, to work at Panthers because a friend said to me that um, they were looking for security opportunities and I'd stopped working for a little while because I wanted to focus back on um, you know my wife my marriage and my children so I' stopped it for uh, a short period of time from stallions and I had an old uh, motorbike, it was a 1942, um, uh, what they call a Waller, and um, the motor had blown up and I needed to get that bike back on the road, but we didn't have the money. So a friend said to me, he said, look, just come and work um, six weeks up to Christmas, you'll get the money for your bike and you know, you'll know you get it back on the road. And I thought, yeah, absolutely, otherwise hmm. it's going to be off the road for a long time. Yeah. So anyway, we went to Panthers and um, we uh, we worked one night and it was the worst place I've ever seen in my life Uh, they had a large security team and security were I was the only one in the nightclub there was supposed to be uh, I think about eight of us maybe maybe ten of us in the room anyway um, there was no one else in the room and I looked around there's several fights that you had to jump in and break up yourself and uh, it was extremely risky and um, one of the supervisors were upstairs Mary she came down and I said to her Mary what's going on Where, where is everyone she said I'll show you Steve come for a walk so she took me upstairs and there was guys sitting at the bars drinking Crown Lagers, and they were the supervisors. And then I said, you are kidding. And uh, I said, they not a break. And she goes, no, they're not on a break. She said, they can come up and never drink whenever they want. Yeah. I said, you're kidding. And then we went for it. She said, I haven't finished. So she took me outside and uh, we went up. There was a combi van and they had the curtains drawn back. And she knocked on the, on the window and the curtain opened up and they peeked out and they opened the door because I could see it was Mary. And you've got a whole lot of security guys sitting in there, um, you know, drinking beer, playing cards. There was even a bong on the table. Mm. And um, that was that was it because there was no accountability, there yeah. was no leadership. And when I said to Mary, how, how can this be? How, how does this happen? You've got duty managers. She said the duty managers are so scared of some of the people, the clients that are coming to this venue, that they don't. Saying for security, they don't report security, so security just run their own race. Yeah, and um, so the security manager was an ex-detective, and um, he had a meeting on the Wednesday night. So I worked that one night, and we had the security meeting. And then he said, "Ah, oh, okay." At the end of the meeting, is there any general business? And I'm sitting there thinking, "Will I? Won't I? Will I? Won't I?" Right. Um, and I'm thinking I need to say something. Will I? And I'm thinking because well, there's a bit of fear. Yeah. A lot of security guys there. You hadn't worked with them before. You know. You thought, you know. So um, in the end, I said, no, no. I, I need to say something. So I said, uh, yeah. And I put my hand up, and he said, yes, to I said, look, I just got to say, this is the worst place I've ever worked out in my life. You know. And um, and he, he went, oh, the whole room, everyone turned and everyone looked at me, and he said, oh, why is that? And I said, well. I said, "I've um, oh, got a sitting outside, not doing their job. A sitting up here, not doing their job." I said, "But let's take it offline, Tim. I'm happy to tell you, you know." I said, "I just, I don't think now is a place for me to go into that." Mm. And and the looks that I got, I can tell you now, mate, If looks could kill, I would, I would have been dead a hundred times over. Yeah. But um, you know, again, I just felt that, you know, I needed to say what I needed to say. Otherwise, I couldn't have worked there. I couldn't have kept working in that environment.
0: Yeah.
1: And um and not not have said something, so. When the meeting was dismissed, Tim said to me, he said, oh, can we chat? And I said, sure. And Tim said, look, he said, mate, I actually know what's going on. He said, uh, I've been an ex-detective. I've got no, no idea about crowd control or, or, or real leadership with, with security men. He said, I need a good supervisor. Can you can you help out? Can you be my supervisor? And I said, on one condition, that you give me the, the authority and the autonomy to, to to run it the way I need to run it. And he said, absolutely, you've got it. And um, look, I was um, very much uh, a hated man. Some people said to me, "Hey, Johnny, come lately." Some people said, "Hey, you're a, you're a dog." Mm. But you know, I, I you know, I said to them well, "You know, if you think that, we can we can sort that out any way you want." You know, yeah. um, I said, "But things are going to change, and if you don't want to change, um, then you need there's a door, and there's opportunity for change." So anyway. Um, six months later I was a supervisor we turned that place around we turned that place around we got rid of what I call a lot of the plastic gangsters we got rid of a lot of the guys that were assaulting people or whacking people Uh, we built a capable security team and what they were looking for Alan was leadership they were looking for structure they were looking for somebody to um, because you know I didn't know at the time but culture culture eats strategy for breakfast so the culture was poor there was no self-regulating culture so they were looking for that and unbeknownst to me I was providing that that, that leadership, I didn't even really understand it was leadership at the
0: time. At the time, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. And then probably, that's probably six weeks later, That's, probably what, it, resign, sorry,
0: yeah, that's probably what I love about your story the most. Uh, the more I get to know, the more like we've known each other for a long time, you have this unerring, if you could call your sailboat, like a keel that's ethical. <laughs> and you even had it way back then. You, you knew what was right and wrong. You just needed to have the opportunity to demonstrate it. Yeah, so keep going. Sorry I interrupt. No, no, no. It's yeah. good.
1: I think that's a, it's a very valid point. But it's uh, very pertinent. So um, Tim, Tim, the security manager, had resigned. He was moving out to the country and uh, they advertised the position. And um, I was asked internally to apply for it because um, my name had been put forward by all the duty managers who they just couldn't believe the change in the place. And yeah. uh, so anyway, I, uh, I did. I um, applied for the position. And I was successful, but I almost, almost let fear stop me from taking that position. I had a government job; it was secure, it was stable, and the fear of giving up that government job, taking on a role, and because I remember saying, "But I'm not a security manager. Yeah. I'm a bouncer. I'm a head dormant. Yeah. So I was almost talking myself out of it. But the thing that really really resonated with me was the thought that came in, if you don't have a go, if you give this up, you will never, ever know. Yeah. And the thought of living with, I would never, ever know, I think propelled me to to, to say, well, you know what, I'm gonna have a go, if, if, if I'm successful, I'm successful, and if I don't, well then, so be it. Yeah. So I did, and, and and that gave us the opportunity to, um, to really, really make the changes. Um, And I remember sitting there when I was the security manager thinking, but what do I know about this? And I thought, well, you know what? You've got to start somewhere. So who do I know? And it was about starting to find people and networking and and that as well, you know?
0: So just let me... um, I've had this conversation with so many people and I've been there myself. Um, And normally some of the conversations I've had with other exceptional leaders that found themselves leading in territories where they'd never been before, they feel like frauds. They feel fake. They feel like they don't know what they're doing. So what did you do um, to probably uh, give your own head a chance? Because you probably obviously had the skills, but your own head didn't think you had the skills.
1: Well, no, and I think the, it's an age-old thing. They'll soon find out that I'm a fraud.
0: They'll yeah.
1: soon find out that I'm, I'm not a security manager. But um, the thing I realised is that um, it was a wonderful opportunity. And here was the opportunity for me to really change things and turn things around. The same old thing. I saw an opportunity. I really wanted to make a change. But was I going to be able to, you know, as I said, talk's cheap. Anyone can talk it up, but it's what you do that counts. Yeah. So I saw, I saw the opportunity. And then I thought, well, what do I know about CCTV? Nothing. Because I, I remember um, my boss said to me at the time, Don Elks, the deputy general manager, he said, we need a master plan. Uh, for access control and surveillance system for Panther, and I, I fell over and nearly wet myself. And I walked outside and went, oh my god, that's it, I'm gone, you know. Uh, and then I thought, well actually, who have I met in this short period? So I spoke to a couple of guys, had coffees and I've got some friendships today that, 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 that came from that. Yeah. Guys that said, well mate, this is how we do it, we we'll start off here and they actually, basically did 90% of all the work. All I had to do was add the local content. Yeah. And um, And the key thing there was, was just position yourself and learn and just don't be afraid of, of, of learning. And um, so I identified all the areas I thought I was weak at and it was basically everything in, in security management yeah. because all I really had was experience of being a head dormant, a dormant. But I've also found you've got to do two things in life. Experience is great, but you've got to give yourself the, the credentials and the learnings. A lot of people have the credentials and the learnings, but they don't have the experience. And A lot of people have the experience, but they don't have both. So you've got to really look at it from both angles. So that's what I did. I just made sure that I I spent every working um, hour on learning how to develop and grow. I went to seminars. You mentioned the security organization, which is ASIS International. Um, I became a member of ASIS International. That's the preeminent security society in the world with over 40,000 members. And again, I met some wonderful people who uh, were very senior, and uh, they were mentors. And I wasn't afraid to ask questions. I not, wasn't afraid to say, well, look, I really know nothing about this. So if you, if you, if you were doing this, uh, and, th- and you had this, what would you do? How would you do it? Yeah. And uh, some great people would say, well, mate, this is what I do, this is what I do. And it was a little bit like a, um, a menu. I could pull from that an item, that I could pull from that. And you could add the local content and what you were learning, and you could put that into play.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, so, um, so that was really good with ASIS International uh, to, to, to help me develop and, and, and help me grow there.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, what was interesting was um, Roger was a great leader and uh, he was the CEO of the Panthers Group. And Roger was a great mentor to me. Um, um, but I remember Roger, he uh, called me one day and he said, Steve, uh, can you come over and see me? I said, certainly. And you go over there with a little bit of... yeah you know, nervous, going, well, what's this about? The CEOs just called me. Yeah. So uh, he sat me down, and this was not long after I became the security manager, and he said, Steve, I've just come back from um, Penrith Police Station. And I said, oh, yeah? He said, yeah, I had a meeting with the crime manager and I had a meeting with some detectives up there, and they said they wanted to share some intelligence with me in regards to being uh, the security manager. I said, "Ah oh, yeah? And he said, well, mate, he said... Um, He told me a few things and uh, I said to him, well, you know what, he's already declared all that to me. And he said, there's an opportunity for him to change his life. And um, and I'd like to make clear, it was not that I had done anything personally. It was more about associations, riding motorcycles, riding motorcycles, you know, with with, with guys that were in outlaw clubs and and then guys I'd worked with over the years, you know I mean? some, uh, let's call them colourful characters, you were running their doors, you were running yeah. their venues. So it wasn't so much what I'd done, but it was kind of guilt through association. Yeah. What was interesting, the licensing sergeant at the time, he'd applied for the job at Panthers. So I would just wonder how much
0: oh, wow. you know,
1: of, of what was said was because of sour grapes.
0: Wow, okay. But
1: the good, thing, the good thing about Roger Cowan was Roger said, you know what, he's the best security manager we've had. He's been the only one who changes around. He was upfront, he was honest with me about his background. He said, "So as far as I'm concerned, until he does the wrong thing by me or Panthers, he stays." So can I just
0: can I just stop you there? So like I've heard your story so many times, but I don't think I've heard what you just said that you actually declared to Roger, the CEO of Panthers, who was an extremely influential man, um, that your backstory.
1: Yes. Okay. So probably not in as much detail um, as as he was told by the police. Yeah. I I certainly did did declare. So do
0: you want to um, probably want to like like I've known you as I say I've known you for a long time. You're always impeccably dressed. Um, but I know I have seen you in a T-shirt a couple of times. Um, and you're a, you're a big, very fit man, probably six foot two, three, uh, at least sometimes up to a hundred kilos heavy, all muscle, and your arms are fully inked, aren't they? Correct. Yeah. So yeah. So um. So first impressions by some. Would 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 not be not be positive, um, so it's a, uh, so I kind of take it my hat off to you every day um, that you have lived that and turned that around. Um, so and I think that our listeners wouldn't know that. So and that's what's so special about you that you're so honest with Roger about that, that he went to bat with you. But I think what's important what is what comes next. So tell me what comes next.
1: Yeah. Well. Um... I think the thing there was we're able to sort of really make huge changes at Panthers, and um, that, that was that was rewarding. And uh, the good thing about Roger was that um, I never once had to ask Roger. You know, uh, he'd say, "Is there any seminars you want to go to?" When I got involved in ASIS International, um, I was asked to represent Australasian and International Security and Gaming Council, and uh, Roger made it encourage me. In fact, Panthers paid for uh, one. Sometimes two trips a year to go to Las Vegas. They even paid for me to spend six weeks in Las Vegas on a, on a study tour. Yeah. And so Roger was always always encouraging you to, to develop and grow. And the other thing, you know, never once had to mention um, salary because every time Roger saw that you're growing and adding more to the business, he'd come back and say, Well, look, we'll reward you a little bit more, look after you a little bit more. So <clears throat> Roger was great like that as well. Um, I think the, that went along well for, for many, many years. Panthers ended up um, on an amalgamation strategy where they picked up 14 clubs. And what that allowed me to do was grow even more. Because I remember I had a guy from uh, Bramble, like an armor guard company. He asked me to come and work for them. And I told him that, uh, thank you, but uh, I'm very, very happy at Panthers. And he said, I'll make you a prediction. I said, what's that? He said, you will outgrow Panthers. And when I saw him years and years later, I said, "Guess what, Ron? I said
0: the
1: prediction was wrong, because the joint's now got fourteen properties."
0: Yeah.
1: And I said, um, "I said, so it's impossible to outgrow Panthers, yeah. and plus the opportunities." Um, when When Roger When Roger retired, um, he promoted the chief operating officer into the position of uh, CEO. Yeah. And um, then I was promoted into the position of general manager of Pen- Penrith Panthers.
0: Yeah.
1: And again, um, you know, that's that was that was another wonderful, wonderful opportunity. You know, but just probably going back a little bit, there were some decisions that I made in my life when I was still the security manager of Panthers. I think are very important because I think a big thing in life is is your values, and in the early days. I always think I had the same values but I would override my values because I think I was more a man of consequences than a man of conviction today I'd like to think that I'm a man of conviction whereas in the early days you'd say okay well you know if this would benefit me I would override my values because of material gain or because I think at that stage you were a little bit younger and selfisher, and you know, so it was easy to override your values, even though you would have felt bad about it. It was a risk first reward thing as well, too. Yeah. But, but that was some of the changes, the, the changes I had to make because I could see that, you know, riding with an outlaw club, even though I was only an associate, riding with an outlaw club, um, times were changing because, you know, we go back to the early days when they were mostly family men. Um, you know, they were good guys, um, you know, they like to like ride bikes and party and have good times. But even back then, in the early 90s, I could see that people were changing a little bit by a little bit by a little bit. And I didn't really like that environment. I didn't really like that change. And I think one of the things that I always struggled with was the... the feeling that if, if, if I don't make the break, if I don't make that change then I'm going to probably squander the opportunity at Panthers, pressures on family so I just had a real real knowing that I needed to make those changes and, and I did mm. um, so I think that was really good because if you make good decisions in your life, they'll build a, a good life and a good foundation but if you make bad decisions, poor decisions then I think that's going to lead you down the track you don't want to go because yeah.
0: it's a little bit like but um, like habits. Build good habits in your life, great. Yeah.
1: Bad habits in your life, it'll it'll be the end of you. So when uh, when Roger retired, um, I was asked, "Do I want it? the position of uh, general manager of Penrith Panthers?" And, uh, and again, I basically thought to myself, will oh, not?" Why, why would I want to do that? I'm, I'm, I've been 17 years in this job. I've got a good salary. I'm established. I'm a subject matter specialist. I'm getting to, to do all the things I want to do. Why would I want to take any risk? Yeah. I know not have been a general manager. But Roger and Glenn Matthews, who was the new CEO, said, Steve, you're a leader, and you know this venue better than anybody, and you've got some great leaders here to work with, and your style of leadership, we think best suits." us to have you do the role, so again, um, I almost talked myself out of it, I'm so glad I didn't because it was an amazing, amazing opportunity, but what that highlights too, Alan, you'll recall when you were the inspector at Penrith and you were given the portfolio of reducing the assaults of Panthers, and it just highlights the mindset um, where I was at because we were held up around Australia as the benchmark, came to security management, and and um, and even uh, Ben Fesztek, who was your um, uh, the local area commander at the time, and you know Ben was a was, a, was I like Ben, I got it really well with Ben. He'd be a hard, real hard guy at times, but even Ben said, "Look, Panthers are the best, mate." I remember I think Alan in the conversation hmm. Ben said to you when you were given the portfolio to reduce assaults. He said, "I oh, look, Panthers are the benchmark and I don't think you can do much about that. And that was a red flag to you, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that was a
0: red flag to you. But I'll probably, I'll probably, um, I might just clarify that for the listeners. So at that time, inspectors of police were given a crime portfolio and my portfolio in Penrith was assaults. So when I researched where were the greatest amount of assaults per month in New South Wales... It was Panthers, (laughs) Um, so I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do about this? Um, And and this is where the analogy that Ben Pescheck's talking about and you're talking about, Steve, is um, just for the listeners. Steve Van Sweeten, our guest today, as the security manager, had the best system I have ever ever seen for security. Like every say say that they had twenty Panthers had twenty assaults in a month, Steve would review each one of those 20 assaults on CCTV with the security guards involved and critique it and improve it. Police don't do that. Police don't do that now. <laughs> um, no one does that now. So it was, it, was, it was the benchmark for how to manage and review, but the numbers were not acceptable.
1: No, no, yeah. no, that's a good point. But it's interesting because my thinking was well we're the benchmark and we've got these systems and we've got these procedures so there's nothing we can really do um and then um but looking back now i was coming in from a position of fear mm. because when you asked for those meetings alan and we all got together our senior management team my fear was all oh, geez like i felt like there was a little bit of um like the, the pressure's on us now to reduce the assaults and so all of a sudden, that fear started to rise up. Saying, "Oh, geez, what if what if the CEO, what if the board start thinking I'm not doing a good job?" So, so that forced you to dig in a little bit more,
0: mm-hmm. and it
1: forced you to be a little more defensive. So, well, you know, like I've done the benchmarking, and I can tell you now we're safer in this in this town than anywhere. You know. Yeah. So that was that more of that defensive thinking, and um, it's also interesting too because we spoke about some strategies and. I remember saying to you, well, they they might be great strategies reducing uh, assaults from a policing perspective,
0: but they're certainly not going to help a commercial.
1: Yeah. So it was just a different mindset and where I was coming from. And it was interesting because when I was um, in the position of being general manager of Penrith Panthers, my whole mindset shifted Mm. and changed because we could see the storms on the horizon. We could see what was coming. We didn't know there was going to be a... Uh, we didn't know the name of the the body, but it was called Alec, Alcohol Licensing Enforcement Command. Yeah. And I tell you now, those guys took no prisoners yeah. when it came to coming into venues and whatever. The old days of licensing police and working together, they, those were gone, they were reg- regulators, and they were in there to enforce. But I could see those storms on the horizon, even as a security manager. But I just felt that we had to keep bunkering down and just finding ways of doing it better. But when I became the general manager, I closed the nightclubs. Yeah. We threw away $8.8 million worth of revenue. But I can tell you what, salts went to almost zero overnight. And then we grew revenues back and we built the business back with the mums and the fathers and the the people that were low risk. But it's just interesting that I could never have even looked at closing those nightclubs or suggesting those nightclubs closed while I was a security manager because I felt my job, was to provide the systems and the procedures and the leadership and the team to manage it. Mm. Can you see what I'm saying now? I'm like, it was only when I became the general manager that I could even look at it differently than what I was looking at it yeah. as a security leader.
0: Sometimes, sometimes they talk about that, looking, you can't, you can't I mean the, the colloquial way, you can't see the forest for the trees, through the trees, yeah. um, sometimes it's just looking through a different lens. Um, and I think you are being a little bit harsh on yourself. You actually, as a security manager, I remember it used to be, I think it was 20 assaults per month. And while you were still in the chair as a security manager, you brought it down to five a month. Uh, Um, so so you made a lot of headway. So I think you're not being very kind to yourself in the story (laughs) you're telling. So, um, so
1: yeah, so, um, but that, that, that worked really well, um. While well, we got some tremendous, uh, and I say we, I use the word we all the time, because I had probably 45 managers that would answer to the general manager's position, and um, the challenge for us was to, we, we, we had lost a lot of money, closed the nightclubs, and the gaming had gone south, so we'd lost the type of clientele we wanted to get back, so there's a huge challenge to, to to grow our revenues and increase, you know, the bottom line. and. Um, Again, it was about going to our people and empowering them and saying, well, look, you know your business, you know, how can we improve customer service, how can we look at, you know, trimming the fat, how can we make these savings, how can we do it collectively. So that was a great learning experience for really empowering people and I suppose trusting in people and believing in people. Because one thing I've learned is you get good results through people. There's a book by a guy called Michael Gerber and uh, it's called The E-Myth and uh, I used to to read it plenty of times because he would talk about, you know, the the system's a solution. 80% of your problems come from lack of systems or poor systems or systems that fail and the 20% come from people. Well, I agree with that in principle because he used to say, you know, you systemise the mundane and you you humanise the exception. But what i found is if you get really good people, you agree on outcomes, you agree on the parameters that they have to operate in, get out of their way. You're there to remove obstacles for them. You're there to support them. You're there to champion. You're there to make sure that they grow as people. And you'll get unbelievable results if you can do that. Yeah, you've got to overcome some of your fears because you're giving up a little bit of control. But what I've seen in my life those managers that fail to do that become micromanagers. Yeah. Their teams then become micromanagers. And I, so we've got probably over 40 clients today, and I can see the different levels of culture that exists, yeah. the different levels of leadership that exists, and a big thing, I believe, it comes down to empowering your people to be successful.
0: Can you give me, um, like, you would... This is... We're talking about... Twenty at least twenty years ago, some of this stuff, and you, but you just gave example current examples of forty of your clients, and so that's that could be very. I'm not, not going to ask. I'm, I don't want you to name them, um, but that's you know twenty years of experience. Can you give me an example of one of those forty-five managers twenty years ago that you said you know your system, you know you know your work, you, um, you gave them the the outcomes you wanted. How did, did, say, one of those managers surprise you with what they came up with because you gave them the trust to do it?
1: Well, um, a few of those managers have gone on to actually be operations managers and CEO managers of other clubs. And even at Panthers now, there's a gentleman there at the moment, uh, Glenn, who was given an opportunity to uh, just lead our reception team and then later our uh, central control, which is a cash accounting group. He's now the operations manager for the Penrith Panthers group. And um, so I think just about every every leader that we ended up keeping, because it was a little bit of a cull at first, because you know, I remember sitting with the leaders and saying, well, look, um, after the, a couple of times when they come back and said, no, we just can't make changes. We just can't do anything. And I said, well, I know we can, and you need to go away again. You need to come back and tell us how we're going to make those improvements. Mm. So some of those people just weren't interested. Some of those people, they were happy just to come to work at 9 o'clock and leave at 4 o'clock. Yeah. So there were some that didn't make it, but that's okay. I think that's part of identifying the, those ones that... Um, I, there's a saying, if in doubt, there is no doubt. When in doubt, there is no doubt. Yeah. So when you reach that point that that, that that you're now doubting that that person's going to get on board or that person has, has yeah. the ability or capabilities, yeah. well, there is yeah. Yeah, and that's. I think you need to make the make that, that that tough decision, but I always felt good because I would draw the line a lot further down the track than somebody else would, yeah. because that was important to me. That I knew that I had given people every opportunity to, you know, be, be be the maker of their own destiny, so to speak.
0: Write their own story.
1: Exactly right. Yeah. Write their own yeah. story. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah um and i've like you and i've talked many times but i've never heard this part of your story as well um so thank you for sharing because you're you're kind of at the heart of what this uh, interview series is all about is essentially getting out of the way and letting people do what they do best because they've got they've got skills um and they hate they hate being micromanaged Oh, absolutely but what i've found too well
1: not only do they hate it but they be, then become micromanagers, and they become micromanagers because they're so fearful of of, of something going wrong. They're so fearful of failure, and they they know someone's looking over their shoulders, so they start to control others. Yeah. So it's 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 a vicious vicious cycle.
0: It's and funny. Um. um that,
1: that really relates to the culture of the organisation.
0: It's funny. Uh, like I've I've kind of dealt with this topic a long time. Um. And I, I suppose, whilst I knew it come from fear, I've never he- heard it said so eloquently, and that's why it happens, isn't it? They're fearful of looking bad themselves. They're, they're fearful of losing their job. They're yeah. fearful of their boss saying you're useless, and I, uh, uh, so it's um, it is fear, it's a fear thing. Yeah. Thank Thank you. Um. All right. So you're you've taken us through to. You virtually said you've, you've, you learned to empower people. You're still at Panthers as, gen, as the general manager, but you went through to your current time where you've got 40 clients in your current business um, where you can see the culture. Where do you want to go next with, um, with this? Uh, where, where, did you, where do you think you're... Like, I've got one of the questions I wanted to ask you. Is, where does this directional compass that you have towards ethical decisions come from?
1: I, I as long as i can remember i've always wanted to do the right thing So I I, I I just had this feeling i've always wanted to do the right thing doesn't matter what it was but i didn't always choose to do the right thing yeah and I think that's why that's why choice is just so important so i think i've always always had that in ground in me but it was so easy you know because we can always justify why we do things Mm. and that's another thing I've learned you know it's and you, and you, you sit around and you, you, you listen and people will justify why something happened Yeah. and um, so I've always always um, wanted to do the right thing but I've always wanted to to learn and grow and develop but what held me back was choosing I suppose pleasure over pain you know we say we, we run from pain and run towards pleasure but um it was only when you probably got a little older, dare I say, a little wiser, that yeah. you could see that it was up to you. It wasn't up to anybody else. You yeah. were the one that needed to actually do it because, you know, as I said, talk's cheap. Anyone can, can, can say that, anyone can talk that, but you actually have to do it. You have to put it into play and you've got to make sure that every single thing you do takes you towards success and if there's anything that doesn't take you towards success, you identify it real quick and you chop it out. Yeah. Because, you know, I've known a lot of really good people, really intelligent people. But I shake my head because it's like chasing shiny objects.
0: Yeah.
1: They'll see something over there and they'll go, right, that's it, and they'll just put a hundred mile an hour into that and they'll get there and they'll go, oh so it might be what they want. And then they'll turn around and they'll see another shiny object and they'll race over towards that.
0: Yeah.
1: So I think you've you really got to know what your values are, and you've really got to stick to your values because your values drive behaviour. Yeah. And um, that's that's one thing I think is really important to me is that you know I, I talk about integrity. I want to be a man of integrity, and it's no good if I say this is who Steve Van Sweeten is and then people are sitting around watching and saying, wait you're not the real deal Steve yeah and that's why we have a little bit of a laugh when someone who knows me, they'll say I'll um, say oh, I ran into someone who knows you they said they knew you and I go yeah because yeah. it's a time frame yeah so my son and friends will say things like oh, was it old Steve or was yeah. it new Steve was it bad Steve or good Steve yeah but it's important because you know it's about it's about the values remember I said, at one stage, I could override those values quite easily.
0: Yeah.
1: Whereas today, there's no way in the world would I ever want to override any one of my values. Yeah. Look, I'm far from perfect, like every man yeah. or every woman. But when you've got a real desire to to be the real deal and act out those values in life, that acts as a magnet, and I think that draws you towards at least living out your values
0: yeah can i ask you you don't have to answer this but um how old are you now 65 65 um and would you agree you're probably in the probably the the best physical condition condition you've been um in your life uh
1: i don't know about best but i've certainly maintained um what i think is a is a very good physical condition and health and and that as well too like you know, you just can't maintain. Uh, um, you know, some of your skill levels, especially, you know, like with, with with the boxing and the kickboxing side, you can't maintain some of those some of those skills. And then, same as even with your strength training, you can't maintain the amount of strength you had, say, like when I was forty five or fifty five or sixty. But, but yeah, um, yeah, I, I feel pretty good.
0: Yeah, and I mean, uh, why? Are, uh, why I wanted to highlight that for our listeners is um, you can tell you can just tell the passion, the conviction, like you're not a you're not a tired old, tired old man. You're you're still going strong. Uh, yeah, and more well, more more than strong. So you're still,
1: you're still trained four or five days a week because I think again, you know, that's a big part of you know, if you get your you know, your physical side right where you, you eat well and you train and you, you feel good physically, I think that's a big part of getting your mental condition right as well too.
0: Totally, totally. So let's. Um, I think you've hinted at it. So you you were the general manager of Panthers. You you now. Um, you know I've introduced you as the CEO of um your own security company called Exact Security. Yeah. Um. Do you want to summarise how you went from one to the other, um, and how you got there?
1: Well, I think um, it was great to be able to stay in the registered club industry, and the beauty of that is there's so many good people and registered clubs have a lot to do with the community. So you're able to, 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 to be part of the community and you're able to give back. And I think that's really important in life. You know, I've been really blessed. And um, you know, when, when you do well um, in life, uh, you, you've got to be able to give back. I think you say pay it forward, Alan? Yeah. You've got to, you've got to be able to do that. And I think that's a good thing. Um, I think the big thing for me was having so many different clubs, different styles of leadership, different culture, different you know, that, that, that was hard, but the key thing for us is we just wanted to provide the best level of customer care, the best level of customer service, and get the right people, uh, empower our people, um, both at, at headquarters and, and um, at the sites, do what you can to uh, to get the right people and empower them, and, um, and, and that's what's led to our success as well. And the other thing too is that we never want to disappoint I never want to let anybody down. Will things go wrong? Absolutely but if you've got a mindset of never ever wanting to let anybody down, never want to disappoint somebody because they trust you then that I think that helps help keep you on course as well.
0: Yeah.
1: You know? But um, I mean even today the hardest thing for us today is finding good quality men and women since covid.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, everybody's experiencing the same problem. The lack of um, people to be able to come and to come and assist but it's worse for security because the entry Requirements by the time you get licensing and the time it takes to get into the industry, it, um, it it's made it very very hard for us today. But even today with our team, we're just saying, okay, well, you know, how do we find our way through this? You know, um, so it's about see one of the things that's hard is being being practical and accepting the reality is this is what we've got to say. Well, okay, let's not rest there. Let's not sit on there. How do we find ways through? How do we yeah, uh, you know, and, and that's the challenge because you know, it's no good not understanding the, the limits of of what's in existence at the moment, but also too you have to be careful you don't rest on that, that you still try to find ways to to, to get through that.
0: Okay, one thing I might just I take you back to that question I asked you. How did um, how 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 did you transition from general managers at Panthers? to the CEO of Exact Security. Was that an easy transition? Or how did you do that?
1: Um, it, it wasn't easy because, again, a mindset of, well, you know, you've had 1,400 people at Panthers, and now you're opening a business with um, a small number of people. So the mindset was, well, if I can do that, I should do this job standing on my head. Mm. And that was that's not the case, that was not the case. And um, it was probably a harder hard gig because it was, it was a whole lot of, um, you had to replicate everything you did in numerous places. And the big thing we found is if we have a true partnership with our clients, we can get excellent results. If we have a, a relationship where they just expect compliance, well, we're going to get average, at, at best, good. You're not going to get excellent results. So um, that's the thing I found hard. You know, when when I was at Panthers, you had a lot of um, control, control over your budgets, you know, control over your negotiations, how you prosecute your case for your for your budget. You, that, that was okay. But when you're dealing with, say, 40 or 50 different venues, that's that's different styles of leadership, different cultures. That's what I found probably the hardest thing to, to, to transition into.
0: Okay. Was there, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just prompting you here a little bit, how did you start your business? Because um, it can't have been, like you're the general manager, as you said, you've got a big salary, you're in charge of a lot of people, you start your business essentially on your own. And you've got to, yeah. you've got to build that.
1: Well, what, what, uh, what happened was, um, when I was the general manager at Penrith, um, we, had a, we had a guy that came in as a chief operating officer And he's a really good guy and he's a great guy and all that, but his leadership style was completely different to mine. And uh, he was put in between the CEO and myself. So after a period of time, I went to to that gentleman and I said, mate, I just can't work under you anymore. Um, Your leadership style, um, I just just can't do it. Anyway, and he said, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, I said, I... I, uh, I want to do another role, which is the Chief Security and Risk Officer for the group. So anyway, we spoke to the CEO about that, and um, the CEO at the time said, no way, that's not going to happen. Then anyway, uh, probably three months later, the CEO said, well, look, he said, "Um, if you went into that role, um, I'd need you to train and mentor a new GM. And I said, yeah, sure, that's fine. I said, but I only want you to sign off on this role if you really believe that this is a role that's going to take us in the future. And he said, yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, a um, new GM came in. It took months to train him and get him ready. And all of a sudden, uh, we're sitting in a meeting and he's got a paper to bring back nightclubs. Okay. And the room was silent. Yeah. And I looked, at, I looked at people that were really passionate about gaming had gone up. But it increased by about $3.5 worth of turnover mm. a week. Mm. And the nightclubs have destroyed gaming. Hmm. So I looked at some real key people in the room and not one of them said a word.
0: Yeah.
1: Because the CEO who was champion and, and he was passionate about bringing back the nightclubs.
0: Yeah.
1: So again, I sat there and said, no. Nah. And, um, you know, uh, I was a lone ranger.
0: Yeah.
1: And I just said, no. Nah, there's not a chance in the world that uh, this is a good decision. Not a chance in the world I can sign on on this. So basically... Um, the CEO and I had a chat, and um, we agreed that it'd be a redundancy, and I'd leave. Yeah. So um, that was scary. Fifty years of age, on a very good package, a very good salary, five minutes from home, twenty years at the venue, but I just, again, I just went, I, and that's what I meant by being true to your values, because I didn't believe in it. I, I, I knew it was going to be, you know, a poor decision. I knew it was going to bring consequences and grief. And, and I went, yeah. and I was, I was right, because within 12 months, they didn't renew the Chief Operating Officer's position. They terminated him. Within 18 months, the CEO, they didn't renew his contract. He yeah. went. Yeah. That new group called Alec, Alcohol Ice Enforcement Command, came in, and they absolutely smashed Panthers, yeah. and they ended up closing the nightclubs. Yeah. But the thing that was done... And, and personally, I know people disagree with this. I don't think they've ever recovered.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So, um, so I think that was that was something that that I, I suppose at fifty unemployed, I went and worked for an international security company, and the guy that I worked for, he was he, he was great because he taught me what a terrible leader looks like, what a poor leader looks like. He was intelligent, he was smart, but he. But he was uh, narcissistic, and uh, I remember he called us all in the office one day and in the boardroom, and he had a chart, and he said, um, we've got a problem, I've identified a problem, I want to get all you guys together, um, he said, because I want, to, I want us to sort through this. He said, but before we do, and he started to turn the flip chart, and he said, so I've identified all these problems. An hour later, it exhausted the meeting. And he turned around and then he said to the Ops Manager, he said, so what do you think, Mr. Operations Manager? He said, oh, well, I think you've covered everything. He said, I don't pay you for that. Uh, and he went out of the room and he got to me and he said, well, what do you think, Mr. General Manager? And I said, I think we need to have this conversation offline. And um, and we did.
0: Yeah.
1: So uh, it wasn't long after that. There was a few more things, but I won't bore you with the details, but he's just a real poor leader. But a guy who had enormous ability, a guy who had enormous intellect, but he just believed that he was the smartest bloke in the room, mm. and he believed that he had to think of the ideas and he had to do it all. And uh, um, yeah, so he taught me a lot about what a poor leader was. He taught me a lot about how not to be a leader. Mm. When, when I did leave, Roger Cowan actually came to me, uh, who was the ex CEO Panthers, and was my mentor. And he said, "Steve, he said, why don't we why don't we open up a business?" And Roger helped get the finance for the business, and uh, we uh, we still got our that first client today. Um, so, yeah, so,
0: um, yeah, I think that's about it. Yeah, well done, well done. Um, so what's... I'll just finish. I think we're towards the end of the, 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 our interview today, Steve. Um, I'll just leave you with these kind of I, I concepts and I'll get you to talk to them. The importance of family, your passion to empower other leaders in your own business and in your own church. I know, I know you're a, a very... Um, a uh, church driven man um what's next for steve Ann sweeten and what would be one bit of advice you would give to a leader who wants to empower others and have an ethical culture so that's four questions for you to ponder family empowering leaders in your own business and in your church what's next for you and one bit of advice you would give a leader who wants to empower other others to have an ethical culture
1: Okay. Well, uh, yeah. Look, I think family is the most, um, you know, it's just it's, it's the most important thing in my life. Um, you know, I think that we've um, been so, so 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 blessed to have a good wife um, and uh, beautiful children beautiful grandchildren, and um, it's it's I think what um, helped you get up every day there for a long, long time, and um, and push through. I think sometimes, particularly when I wasn't at the point where you could have easily. Turned it up. You could have easily given up and gone to seek your own selfish pleasures in life. Um, having that family, having such a supportive wife there, it uh, it really helped um, keep you on track, so to speak. And uh, I think the big thing about family, you just get so much love and so much joy and so much support out of family. And um, you know, it's 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 it's, it's something you got to work on. You got to work on every relationship because you know it's not always rosy. But you got to. You know, it's a commitment, the marriage is a commitment, the relationship with your children is commitment, and you've really got to make sure you're spending the time. I mean I've had people say to me with, with, with children, they say, um, well it's all about quality time, not quantity time, and I disagree. I think it's about about being there as much as you possibly can. I know people are busy in life but I really believe you've got to make sure that you're building that relationship with, with, with your family, that's your wife, your children, um, I think it's just so important to uh, to, um, to to enjoy your family.
0: Yeah, and they, um, they enjoy you in, in reverse. Yeah, I
1: mean, exactly too. And I, and I think that's that's the thing. You know, you you've got to make sure you're talking into the lives of your children. And um, you know, I remember my son not long ago. Um, like he's thirty seven now. I remember probably about about eight nine years ago. He said to me, "He goes, you know, what, Dad, I love you." He said, "I love you heaps." He said, "But when I want your advice, I'm going to come and ask for your advice." So you've got to be careful, a balance, because you know you share stories about why you don't want them to make those sorts of mistakes. Yeah. But you've also got to recognise that it's it's how you how you do that, yeah. how you into their life, and when you talk into their life, yeah, it comes a stage where you you stop being a father, and you just have those adult conversations like you would with anybody else.
0: You yeah. Know? Yeah.
1: Um, yeah I suppose um, you know about empowering others you see so many people gave me a second chance so many people believed in me and if it wasn't for those people who gave me second chances and believed in me and gave me opportunity you know, who knows where I would have been Alan yeah. and a good example was that time when Roger Cowan came back from the police if he'd said to me Steve you know what I've got some concerns mate I'm really sorry I'll let you go mate, I would have been in that Outlaw Club yeah yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah. No, I would have been. Yeah. And and I look back today and there's not a day I don't thank God and say, you know what, oh God, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Because because I can see where that went for a lot of people and you know I can see the importance of caring for people and empowering people and giving people the same opportunity to develop and grow and learn and build better lives for themselves and better lives for their families and better lives for their children um that's that's something that that you know gets you up in the morning you know because you see we you know we have a saying um you know it's it's you know anyone can love the people you love that are easy to love but how do you love those that are unlovable yeah yeah
0: yeah that's
1: that 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 is hard that is really 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 hard yes yeah Um, um We've talked about it a lot.
0: (laughs) I mean, I think um, I might just interject there a little bit. Like when Roger Cowan came back from the police crime manager and the police detectives with what he knew about you from what they told him, you know, the name of this series is The Courage to Lead. He showed probably an immense amount of courage to keep you
1: on. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and I think that was Roger. He was was, uh, courageous. And he had great vision, and the big thing for Roger though was Roger was doing things so many years ahead of everybody. He would bring people in, like um, he brought a specialist in on neuro linguistical program. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And
1: he just put that guy in to deal with all the leaders and all the supervisors, um, and there was just many, many things he did like that to develop people, and because and, Roger really believed in people. Yeah. And uh, so no, he was, he was, he was amazing, but. Um, it's funny, you know, because you, you talk about church, um, I am a leader, uh, we call it a small connect group, and, you know, over the years I've got I've got about 10 people in that connect group, and we've also got our motorcycle ministry, um, which is um, the you know, the Disciples for Christ, and people have said things like, you used to ride with 1%ers and now you ride with 10%, <laughs> and I say thank God. But the reason I raise that is because for a while there I was so frustrated with some of the guys in my group because they would just never make these changes. They'd sit there and say, yes, 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 I know, I know, and I will, and I will, but they never did. Mm. They just didn't put it into play. And it's interesting because I saw a little tape the other day and it said, um, um, "It said, God, I prayed for strength and you gave me problems to overcome. And it said, God, I prayed for wisdom and you gave me obstacles and, 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 and hardships to, 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 to endure and work out. And it said, um, and I prayed for love, and you gave me people that, 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 that were busted. You gave me people that were ever. But I get it now because remember I said it's easy to love those people that you love? Yeah. But you love people that, that draw the life out of you. I've had people that say to me, no, 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 you've got to surround yourself with people that, that add and a positive to your life. But what I found is by overcoming my frustrations and staying the course with these people, that's enabled me to really love these people now and, and build a better relationship and a stronger relationship. You know why? Because I wanted to quit. Yeah. I wanted to give up. Yeah. I wanted to run. Yeah. I wanted to go because I was sucking the life out of it. Yeah. But but because I didn't quit and believed in the people and stayed with them, we're now seeing some fruit in their life. We're seeing them change their life. So, yeah, and I think that was that was the thing. Sometimes you say, be careful what you ask for because you will get it, but maybe not the way you want it.
0: Yeah, dressed, dressed in work clothes. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, we've got last two questions, um, oof, I might do them in reverse, what, what, what would be one bit of advice you would give a leader who's listening to this today, uh, who wants to empower others to have an ethical culture, or a supportive, uh, inclusive culture? Look, I think
1: you need to um, be the leader. We talk about everything rises or falls on leadership. And you need to take a risk. Take a risk on people. Give them an opportunity. Some will astound you with how well they do, and some will disappoint you. But you've got to be prepared to take that risk. You've got to be prepared to get out of their way, as you say, them Give them the opportunity to succeed or fail. But you also need to be there to encourage them. You need to be there to, 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 to lead them as well, too. Um, and lead them I mean by suggesting stuff to read and you know courses to go to but I think that's the big thing don't be afraid remove the fear and let people you know take the opportunity And I think the other thing too what I've learned too is there's, there's probably so much power in fear because if you take it to a boxing ring Fear is something that people conjure up in their own mind, and fear is there to be overcome. But the big thing that humans, we all struggle with, is is, is the fear of failure. So sometimes leaders don't want to empower people because if they fail, uh, they, they, they fear that they will fail. Mm. So the fear of failure. The other thing is the fear of loss because none of us want to lose. We always, we have a real fear of, of loss. Mm. The other thing is the fear of the unknown, so if we empower somebody, there's an unknown there. Yeah. Is this going to be a good move? And we've got to overcome that fear, and the other one too is, is the fear of rejection. That's a big thing because none of us want to be rejected, and sometimes people don't realise through leadership, they don't have the courage to overcome those fears, to give people the opportunity to develop and learn and grow. So that's probably the, the, the advice I would give, yeah. is have the courage to overcome all the fears that would stop you from investing in people, that would stop you from believing in people. That's, yeah, that's probably what I'd...
0: Yeah. That, that that could be one of the quotes I put in your intro. I think that's, that's fantastic. Thank you. Totally unrehearsed um, and just off the cuff. So that's the last question. What's next for Steve Van Sweeten?
1: Okay, I always thought when I got to um, 60, I'd retire. Well, that didn't happen. And I thought, for sure, 65, I'm going to retire. That hasn't happened because I realised there is no finish line. Whatever you're enjoying what you're doing, whatever you're making a difference, um, yeah, well, well, why stop? I mean, you can you can slow down a bit, and I've slowed down. I've got an amazing team of people who who really shoulder the load day to day. My my role today is just to support them, make sure our relationships are strong, and make sure that we're performing. Um, remove any obstacles for them and support them. But you know, if I want to want to go for a ride in the morning on my motorbike, I go for a ride. If I want to leave early and go for a ride, I go for a ride um, because. know it's important to get that work-life balance so you know if i if i did retire you know um i've heard too many stories of people who retire um and if they don't do anything but if for me while while things are still going okay um i I can have that work-life balance yeah so uh yeah perfect
0: yeah that's all i like it so i think that that winds us up steve um if i could just um probably summarize the Steve Van Sweeten story, um, a man initially who lived for life and, and, and squandered a lot of opportunities, um, ultimately probably from 20s through to probably mid-30s, um, and then an opportunity, uh, an opportunity and a bit of faith was given to you a couple of times, um, then, then you jumped on that opportunity and support from someone like Roger, uh, Correct. Roger Cowan, um. And then you actually kicked a lot of... You you developed yourself, you you surrounded yourself with a lot of um, relationships where you learnt from others when you didn't have the skills yourself. Um, You build on your reputation, you build a really good um, life. As you said, you were at the pinnacle of your game after 20 years um, at Panthers. um, And then you chose another path. You you had the courage to to write another story at 50 and that new story is quite wonderful. And I think um, one of the things that I loved um, that you talked about was um, how you uh, empower other people to be successful um, and focusing uh, on getting out of their way and let really good people do what they do. Uh, And I think think that's the gem of it. So, um, Steve, and I think the last bit was um, while, while, while ever I'm enjoying what I'm doing, there is no finish line as long as I've got a work life balance. So, um, thank you. Sure. Thank you, Steve and Sweeten. Um, I've really enjoyed our, our chat today. Um, and um, thank you for being part of our program.
1: No, thank you, Alan. I appreciate the opportunity to share my story. Thank you.
0: Thanks, mate. All the best. Take care.